SequelCast 2 is part of the Batman Podcast Network. For more information, go to batman-on-film.com. I'm not going to argue with you. I mean, any man who can trick my machine can do anything. How did you beat my defenses? Well, those defenses are pretty good as long as the machine doesn't know it's in trouble. This time it didn't see the danger. I just went in there with a plain old can of acid. The machine didn't know that when that stuff gets hot enough, it'll eat through anything. Uh -huh. uh, watch the trees. Uh -huh. I guess it died of acid indigestion. Hello and welcome to SequelCast 2, a podcast looking at films in a franchise, one movie at a time. I'm your host, Matt Bradley-Shergi, and with me is William Thrasher. Hey everybody! I, I was trying to come up with a Richard Pryor line to quote, but I couldn't think of any. There's no good ones in this movie. Um, <laughs> uh, yeah, we're talking about Superman 3, released in 1983, continuing our look at the uh, original batch of Superman films. This was directed by Richard Lester, who directed the uh, theatrical version of Superman 2. Again, you know, same uh, producers, the Ilya Salkin and Pierre Spengler, uh, with a screenplay by David and Leslie Newman, based off the comic by Jerry Siegel and Joe Schuster, starring uh, Christopher Reeve, Richard Pryor, Jackie Cooper, Annette O'Toole, Robert Vaughn, and Margot Kidder, with uh, music by Ken Thorne, and some original songs by Giorgo Moroder. With, um, with cinematography Robert Painter, edited by John Victor Smith, um, off an alleged budget of $39 million. This made $80.2 domestically in the uh, in the United States. Or no, that's worldwide. Jeez, what am I thinking? And um, I, I'm looking at the 1983 domestic grosses. When I say domestic, that means United States and Canada. And uh, get, guess what place Superman 3 lands on there? Uh, I bet he still has some box office pull. I'll say three. No, 12. Wow. But, I mean, but, you know, it did, compared to some other sequels that came out in 83, it did better than Psycho 2, Porky's <laughs> 2, and Jaws 3D, but it did not do as good as Octopussy. Um, Return of the Jedi was a big release that year. Well, yeah. And and a movie that was the start of a what would become a franchise, National Lampoon's Vacation, just narrowly made more money than Superman 3. Wow. So, you know, it, it was a far cry from... I think the uh, the original made something like uh, $100 million domestically, and so this made, you know, almost half that. Um, and then Superman, the original one, made a, a hell of a lot more. But uh, this was still successful enough, but I think also considered kind of a disappointment uh, from the Salkinds and... Uh, because of this, they would not. They decided not to retain the rights to make a Superman movie for Superman Four. But we'll get into that next week. When did you first see Superman Three? I remember, you know, working at a video store and seeing this sort of cheesy uh, poster art by Larry Salk showing Superman holding a screaming Richard Pryor. <laughs> I'm not. I'm actually not sure when I saw this for the first time. I know it would have been after I saw Superman One and Two. Uh, I kind of I like I I know I saw it 
like my first distinct memory of seeing it is when I was eight, but I know I saw it beforehand uh, because of a particular scene. There's a uh, which we'll talk about a little later, but there's like a particular terrifying scene that I know I saw before because when I was eight. I remember watching this movie with my younger brother and sister, and I remember turning to them and saying, it, like, you might want to close your eyes or leave the room in about a minute. And they didn't believe me, and then they were terrified. <laughs> yeah, um, one thing that's interesting is you uh, you look at the, the writers on this, David and Leslie Newman, and they were, uh, not only do they do work on Superman 1 and 2, but David Newman actually was one of the writers of the book for the uh, infamous Superman musical, It's a Bird, It's a Plane, It's Superman. Cool. And um, they also later worked on other things for the Salkinds, like Santa Claus, the movie. Hmm. With um, Dudley Moore and John Lithgow starring in it. But anyhow, yeah, Superman 3, um, I always cut bits and pieces of it on TV. I... Uh, I mentioned last week I had seen uh, the uh, Richard Donner cut of Superman 2 in a theater. And before it started, the people running the show decided to show the, um, you know, good Superman versus evil Superman scene from Superman 3. Mm, cool. Which was which was neat to see on a big screen. Um, <coughs> but yeah, Superman 3, it's one of those things, a, a troubled sort of production. This wasn't, it wasn't always meant to have Richard Pryor. They, um... They yeah, the original the original right? treatment uh, was going to have was going to use both Mister Mixus Pitalik uh, and Brainiac as the antagonist, which and the presence of Mister Mixus Pitalik does suggest like a more comical tone, which, which I can see how they might go from that to Richard Pryor, but it is so weird to to drop two of Superman's biggest named villains and to replace them with Robert Vaughn and Richard Pryor is a very strange decision. Well, had you um, heard why they went with Richard Pryor? Well, it, it's my understanding, uh, and I've seen this routine, but Richard Pryor used to have in his routine, and he did it on The Tonight Show, and supposedly it's from him doing it on The Tonight Show that got him this job, but he has a routine where it's like what it would look like if a news reporter showed up after Superman did something and asked, like just pulled a black guy off the street and asked him, what did Superman do? And he does this whole big overblown description of all these crazy things Superman does to save the day. And I've seen that bit. It's a really, really good bit, but I don't know if you want to really build a Superman movie around that bit. Yeah. You know, they have a, um, off his first album, uh, at least first United States album, simply called Richard Pryor. Um, it's a live album, and the the first track is a Superman bit, which is called something that I don't want to repeat. So, and, and he kind of does some of the Tonight Show Superman bit does, in this yeah. movie, but they don't they don't commit to it. They really should, because you know what it reminds me of. It reminds me of those like nineteen forties and fifties comedies where there's some like they were like. You know, something like like Abbott and Costello, where in the middle of an Abbott and Costello movie, they'll do one of their stage bits, like the baseball bit or something. That's what the, it reminds me of. But they don't commit. They really should do the whole routine. Sure. And 
I mean, with this, we, we mentioned a bit last week with Superman 2 that some of the actor, a lot of the actors were upset with Richard Donner not being rehired to finish his work on Superman 2. Yeah. And, uh, you know, Margot Kidder complained to the press about that whole thing. And as a result, her part in this is, you know, basically a cameo. Um, and I'm, I'm watching this movie and I see how a lot of the plot has Superman go back to Smallville and it's like wouldn't that have been fun to have Lois in there and have kind of a love triangle between Lois and Lena it absolutely would have been yeah. yes well, well cause that's missed opportunity well cause that's the thing that that, uh, and that I'll, t- I'll talk about it later is like that there's a perfect opportunity about a third of the way through the film to get Lois involved and it is, and like the whole the whole time, I'm like, why isn't Lois here? This should be her in this scene. And we'll talk about that more as we get into details of the plot, of course. Yeah, and so like as a brief bird's eye view, you know, the plot um, doesn't start with Superman. It starts with a uh, an unemployed man, Gus Gorman, played by Richard Pryor, which is a real shift because like all the other movies yeah. have started with space and the expansive vistas of Krypton, but here we go with the most mundane thing you can think of: a guy uh, in line at the unemployment office. Unemployment office, and um, you know, after all that, there's. Um, Stuff where, where Clark Kent wants to go to Smallville for his high school reunion. Well, it's part that, of doing a human interest story about right. you know can can the can the country boy go back home after becoming a big city sophisticate? Which I can I can kind of see that as like a human interest story. You know, even, even at the time this movie was made. And that's also that's also when we get uh, Lois Lane written out of the movie, where it turns out she's just flat out going on vacation uh, to Bermuda. Yeah, and then she shows up at the end with like a tan and stuff. But it's and, no, oh, and there's also gonna... a bit where around this time that they they do a lottery through the Daily Planet, uh, and they do the lottery winning, and this nice this nice older couple wins this lottery, and it's like an all expense paid trip to South America, which you think is just kind of a lame gag, but that does come back later. It does, it does, and. Um... You know, among other things in this movie, instead of Bizarro, we get Superman fighting an evil version of himself. Um, we get a villain that's not Lex Luthor, but he might as well be. Yeah, it, it really is. Robert, Robert Vaughn really is playing a modern Luthor type where he's just this rich, dangerous guy. It's it's to it's it's to the point where like there there are other evil billionaires in DC Comics. I am kind of surprised that like if this were to happen today, that character would be Maxwell Lord, not mm-hmm. just not just you know Ross Webster, a name they pulled out of a hat. <laughs> yep. Um, so I mean, with the this movie kind of you know hops all over the place. And it has some action in there. I mean, it, it's overall, I would say, more comedic than the other ones. Um, and it, it, this movie feels like it's six hours long, but it's only two hours. Well, because there's a lot of like elaborate gags that are sort of set up that don't go anywhere. Because because after because after Gus leaves uh, the unemployment office, uh, you know, we we get. It, it feels like what they were trying to set up is this elaborate Rube Goldberg device of people interacting on the streets of Metropolis and causing all this compounded chaos. 
but it really doesn't. It's like everybody involved, like we, we get like a blind guy who gets separated from his dog, but then like finds the handle of a piece of construction equipment and thinks that's his dog. But eventually he's reunited with his dog, but causes he causes a traffic accident. But then there's like painters dropping paint, but then there's a bank robbery. Like all this stuff is happening all at once, but it never builds to a crescendo. The, um, you know, and, and that whole sequence, I think in any other film might be applauded for all, all the practical gags, but in a way to start a Superman film where we don't, you know, see Superman until near the end of the sequence, which admittedly I like the bit where Clark Kent is seeing all this kind of madness happen around him and he, he goes into a photo booth. Oh, yeah, and, and he walks like, out as Superman, and a kid has just put a quarter in, and there's a series of photo booth pages yeah. showing the Clark Kent transformation. And so Superman just, like, rips off the photo of Clark Kent, or Superman. He rips off one of the photos so that he can't reveal his identity and then flies off. That's kind I of think a it's super. Bit. I think it's Superman because he gives it to the kid. But, yeah, it's it's a good, I think that's a good gag. But, I mean, in the past films, you had the... Uh, sort of John Williams Superman theme over space with the credits. And here the credits happen in the middle of all these physical gags with this weird blurred of with like half the screen being blurred and the uh, sort of 3d effect of the letters popping out at you doesn't work as good as in the previous films. The, the 3d effect. I like the blur effect. I don't like, but it does get in the way of seeing, seeing these gags and, and yet narratively this scene serves no purpose so, okay. like, all these gags can only be there something to project the credits on. Although when I see all the improbable stuff that happens, it does make me oh, it does make me think, oh, I bet in the original version, Mr. Mix's Pidlick is doing all this stuff. Oh, it could be. Um, I, like, I, I keep do, waiting for him to pop out. I do recall one of the DVDs had a documentary from the early 80s, uh, you know, that came out around the time of this movie being released. And they mention one of the the kids in the background of this opening scene is the same kid that played the uh, the toddler Clark Kent. Oh, really? From Superman, but there's no way you'd know that unless you happen to see this behind the scenes feature because he doesn't really get close ups or any you know. I mean, I don't think people would remember what he looks like anyway. But when Clark Kent is little and he lifts up the car like it's they use that same actor as a brief bit part in the back okay so can i talk about something particular in in this scene yes uh so there is uh there's a as all the chaos happens there's a car that goes off the road and runs over a, a fire hydrant and the fire hydrant in complete defiance of all the laws of physics fills the car up with water and the guy's trapped inside until superman saves him so after I saw this scene, for the next few years, I was terrified of dying in that exact same way. <laughs> of being trapped in a car, parked over a fire hydrant as it fills with water. That would be a terrifying way to die. It's And, like, why could people not open it from the outside, I guess is my question. Is there yeah, is of pressure? or yeah, Well, it shouldn't make any difference. Like, he should okay. have been able to unlock the doors and open them the moment the crash happened, but for some reason he can't. And, and he has a bit of a, a... It's like a convertible, isn't it? I don't think it's a... Cause, well, it, ha, it has a sunroof, but the sunroof roof. has no glass in it. It just has this metal panel. <laughs> right, but it seems... Yeah, I don't know. It's 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 a weird sequence, and it seems kind of a lame thing for Superman to be doing. It's, it's pretty low stakes. I Yeah, this, this whole bit 
goes on for too long and the music is goofy um you have uh ken thorne during the music again using some of the john williams themes but he does more of his own material here yeah. and you just get the feeling the director didn't want to do a superman movie because it's a while until i mean we see superman in this opening sequence but then after that we still don't see him for a bit and like just everything just feels off well, you know, you know what this feels like. It feels like an off-brand 1970s made-for-TV Superman ripoff movie. That's what it feels like. I could see that. Yeah, it's um, and then even the stuff at the Daily Planet. You know, the the dialogue isn't quite as snappy as in the other films. Lois Lane wants to leave on her vacation. It just feels like no one wants to be there. Yeah, I can kind of get get that sense or no one has time to be there like with Margot Kidder mm. being effectively written out of the movie um, but so Richard Pryor's uh, August Gus Gorman uh, when he leaves the when he leaves the, the unemployment office he finds this matchbook that has an ad for computer programming classes promising you can earn big money as a computer programmer now one those classes usually aren't free, so I don't know how he paid for the class. We that's just we skip ahead to him working as a computer programmer in an office. But did you notice the phone number of the place that does the computer programming classes? No. The phone number is one two three four five six seven eight nine. Ugh, lazy. <laughs> yeah, they didn't even try. But uh, so so I. I there there are moments when I really like Richard Pryor's character in this movie and moments where I really don't like Richard Pryor's character in this movie. Because, like, I, I like the idea that he's, like, an untapped computer super genius. He's just never been in an environment where he can, like, apply that and that that's sort of what happens when he gets his job at, as, as a computer programmer at Websco where... You know, he gets his first paycheck and he's upset that, like, the taxes have been taken out of it. As if he's never received a paycheck in his life. <laughs> um, but there's but there's this neat kind of bit where he's talking with one of the other employees going to the commissary. And the other employee's talking about how because, they, because the company works with such big numbers, the, their accounting processes will sort of generate these fractions of pennies. And to make the books make sense, they just round up. But as a result, there's like fractions of pennies that kind of go missing um, and uh, nobody can bother to keep track of it. So Gus figures out a way to hack into the computer, hack into the accounting system and funnel all to give himself a company expense account and to funnel all the fractions of pennies into his expense account as uh, expense reimbursements, um, which is actually that's a genius move. Um and this is when it brings up something that you often see, like a character that's super smart, but you think, but you realize, oh, they could make more money doing what they're doing legally than illegally. Because if you went to a company and you could show mathematically that the company's losing money through half pennies, and you give the company a way to reinvest those fractions of pennies back into the company, and then you get a cut, you'd be set for life. Oh, I don't think a company would give you a cut, though. I think they would... Well, you wouldn't do it for free. uh, You'd be surprised what some places might expect of you. Uh, However, you know, that plot point was made famous and brought up as a central plot in Office Space from 1999, Mike Judge's uh, excellent workplace comedy. Oh, yes. 
And uh, also, I mean, I, I was reading somewhere that this point in the screenplay, when the movie came out, the IRS, you know, did some stuff and they found out actually, you know, that that's a legitimate scam. And they had to button up some holes in their legalese to prevent people from actually pulling off this scam. But it's kind of neat. So, like, I do, I like, I like seeing Russ Gus getting rich quick. Although I wish we saw more displays of ostentatious wealth. Because little, a little later, when we see Robert Vaughn as Ross Webster, he, you know, his 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 uh, attaché explains to him that that like money, like a whole bunch of money, has been like redirected. Because I guess somebody in accounting noticed the fraction, the fractions of pennies going somewhere instead of being rounded. And they're like, oh, well, we'll have to find him. Which I wonder, wouldn't you just look for anyone who got a mysterious check from the company? It should be easy to find Gus, who got a a multi-thousand dollar reimbursement check. You would think so. And I mean, you know, so this plot about this uh, unemployed guy that falls into computer science and ends up being pretty good at it, like... That's not a terrible idea for, like, a Brewster's Millions-style comedy or a Trading Places kind of scenario, but it has no space in a Superman movie. Well, that could be its own movie, and that's that's what I feel like when I watch this. This looks like they took a Superman movie, a Richard Pryor movie, cut them down, and then cut them together. (laughs) These are, like, two different movies collided. Yeah, it's... It's it's sloppy. It's it's off putting, and I mean to, to, to give it context, Richard Pryor was a huge star at this time. Oh yeah, he was he was he was big. He was huge, huge. Um, but on the other hand, I mean, like, think about it. Like, do you think they they would ever do something like this now? Like have like Kevin Hart, or uh, I can't think of any other comedians at the moment. Um, well, you, well, you know what? I I think they would. But it would happen when they're desperate, or when the studio no longer cares about the franchise. Or you might have them like in a, a scene, like a cameo, like with Bernie Mac and Transformers or something. But you wouldn't have a comedian be a star. And I, I think it goes to show you, you know, them slotting Richard Pryor into this movie shows how they did not really uh, uh, stick to the the original source material, the comic books, as much when making these movies. Well, again, because like that's the the strange thing is like we we've had. You know, in, in the in the first movie, established villain Lex Luthor. In the second movie, established villain General Zod uh, and his lieutenants. Third movie, no villain or no no established villain. Just just a rich guy, a hacker, and one nightmarish thing at the end. But like nothing, like no villain with a history or personality that we can really boo and hiss at the way we want to. Yeah. Um... But, you know, I think once the movie gets to Smallville, it gets a it gets a bit better. I I quite like the um, scene at the chemical plant when it's on fire and Superman has to rescue Jimmy Olsen, and you get a really good long shot of Superman walking through the flames. Yeah, they do a really good like, and this is all practical effects. So like, mm-hmm. you do get a feeling that Christopher Reeves is in danger filming these scenes, even though it probably is all just camera trickery. And I also love the how he uses his environment because like, there's a whole bunch of uh, chemical technicians who are who are uh, trapped on this gantry between two buildings, surrounded by fire on either side. And like, oh, how and how is he going to get them out? And he rips a smokestack off of a building and lines it up with the gantry so they can slide it da- slide down like it's one of those rescue slides, which is pretty cool. Uh, but yeah, and, and the chemical uh, or the uh, chemical plant fire it does it does a few it, it it's it gives us a cool rescue scene which I really appreciate. 
uh, but also uh, it lays some some narrative pipe because chemicals chemicals become important to this movie uh, later on uh, several times, especially the uh, the industrial acid that is kept in this factory. Yes. You know, they have these big vats of acid that normally. I really like. <laughs> I like the exposition. Well, what's the danger? Well, normally nothing. Normally it's regular acid. Regular acid's pretty dangerous, <laughs> unless of course he means that it's low pH acid, which it could be. But the idea is that if this acid gets hot enough, uh, it not only becomes highly acidic, it becomes combustible, and you'd have a big acid explosion and an acid cloud <laughs> just eating through the Pacific Northwest. Um, and and I love the I Superman saves the day in such an awesome golden age comic way where you know the firemen run out of water and he asks where the nearest lake is. Superman flies to the lake, freezes the surface of the lake with his super breath, picks up all the ice and melts it over the over the chemical plant, creating a torrential rain that douses all the flames. I mean, this would have been a much better introduction to the movie than what we got. You know, I think you're right. I mean, that would be a real slam bang intro. Now, the only, and one thing I don't like about the scene though is that it removes Jimmy Olsen from the movie. I would love to see like Clark Kent showing Jimmy Olsen around his hometown and just see him palling around with Jimmy Olsen, but Jimmy Olsen breaks his leg while trying to uh, while trying to get a better photo of the fire and he's just gone for the rest of the movie. I think this might be too, you know, them trying to pay respects to Richard Donner and not wanting to be involved as much. It, But yeah, it, it comes across as kind of sl- sloppy because although Jimmy Olsen had been in the other films, he never really had a chance to shine. And this could have been his sort of like, well, gee whiz, you know, him being sort of bumbling, trying to help Superman, but getting in the way or making things more difficult. Yeah, but we do... Um, but so some of the stuff we do get in Smallville, though, we do get all the stuff with the... Uh, with, his uh, his high school reunion. Uh, we get uh, you know we we're reintroduced to his uh, high school sweetheart Lana Lang, who we saw uh, briefly in the first film. But then we also get introduced to uh, to I guess presume to the high school's jock, but also presumably like the high school bully, uh, Brad Wilson, played by Gavin O'Hurley. Hmm. Yeah, we get Annette O'Toole as Lena Lane, and I think she does a good job. It's sort of a it's a restrained performance. Um, later, she would go on to play Martha Kent in Smallville, and she also was in the '80s mini or the early '90s miniseries It. Oh yeah, King book. But she she does a good job, and and one thing this this was something that I hadn't that hadn't occurred to me while watching it. Um, but uh, I watched it with my wife, and she had commented that she liked the Lana Lang character better as a love interest than she likes Lois Lane because she really respected that uh, that Lana loves Clark Kent for Clark Kent. Right, and that and that does come through in the performance. Like you can totally you can totally buy the emotional connection uh, that that the two have. The the one thing I I don't like, and this and this may be because uh, of you know my my fondness for Superman comics and especially some stuff in the more modern comics, but it's been pretty much established since the eighties uh, that in the comics Lana Lang has always known Clark Kent was Superman because she was his childhood best friend and no one knows Clark Kent better than her, and I kind of don't like that she doesn't know and doesn't find out in this movie. 
I think because it's a movie, they want to sort of keep that mystery. They don't focus that much on it. And it's nice to see Christopher Reeve as Clark Kent in his hometown in Smallville. He doesn't and, and, have to keep up with the pace of the big city. It's a more relaxed performance. And also just be, being a romantic lead. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, and, and, and oh, God. And then I think uh, Brad Wilson is just a perfect jackass. He's like, he's a perfect guy who peaked in high school, and his life has been just a slow, bitter decline ever since then. Right, you know, the kind of guy that still talks about it. Remember when I played the big game and the football, you know, did, did all this stuff in high school remember when remember when yeah it's always sort of living in the past it's it's a good it's a classic sort of archetype and, and he and, does it well and he's always picking on Clark Kent and kind of as the kids say negging on uh, on Lana <laughs> but I also like that it that that's that he still serves other purposes in this story because um so you know uh Ross Webster makes the comment about we'll just have to see whether this this embezzler draws attention to himself and at that very moment Richard Pryor pulls it parks in the middle of the parking lot in a not even in a parking space in this sport this bright red sports car so he gets brought up to uh he gets brought up to Ross's office and Ross kind of like I need a computer genius cuz I've got an evil plan and only someone who's super good at computers can help me and Ross gets pulled into things, and the whole evil plan is that uh, Ross wants to corner the coffee market, but he can't get inroads into Columbia, so he wants to destroy Columbia's coffee prop, crop. And there's this new NASA weather monitoring satellite called Vulcan, which if you, I guess if you reverse the polarity, you can use it to control the weather. Because, let me just put it this way, the hacking in this movie, it might as well be magical. It's like how radiation could do anything in the 50s. This being the early 80s and computers being the new mysterious thing, computers can do anything. So they need Gus to hack into the Vulcan satellite uh, and use it to create a monsoon in Colombia to destroy the coffee crop. But it can't be traced back to Websco, so he needs to go to an obscure Websco uh a subsidiary and use their computer network to do it and he's sent to their cereal plant uh in smallville which where brad wilson works as the night security guard yep and we get it's just a convenient way to move these characters together but but i love but i love it because this is this is one of the bits where like where this is one of the scenes where having having Richard Pryor works to the advantage of the movie. So I'm going to, uh, I'm going to get this out of the way. Uh, I am a big fan of the old timey comedy drunk. And that's in part because I am an old timey comedy drunk, but we get this great thing where <laughs> Richard Pryor dresses really lame and pretends to be a contractor who's supposed to set up a mini bar in Brad's boss's office. And Brad lets him in cause he has booze <laughs> And they just get drunk together and pal around until Brad passes out. And then, of course, Richard Pryor drunkenly gets to the hacking. But I, I kind of like this scene. I like seeing, I like seeing the, the, the washed-out guy and the up-and-coming guy kind of playing off of each other as they get progressively drunker. And I love the giant cowboy hat that Richard Pryor apparently packed with him. Well, and also the act Richard Pryor is doing is a little bit like a, when he does his act imitating white people. 
Oh, yeah, it's the up? lame white person voice when he's trying uh-huh. to get in there. Boy, I tell you, I had to rent a car because they, they canceled the flight because I'm not going to wait in that line. Uh, it's it's This is a scene that plays to Richard Pryor's strengths. Yeah, unfortunately, we don't get a lot with it. And also, you, you have, you know, you feel sympathetic for his character of Gus in the beginning because, oh, he... he is not able to qualify for unemployment anymore and he gets this job and does well at it and then he does something with the bad guys but they don't commit to him being like evil they make him sort of you know in the middle and then later he becomes you know on superman's side and is cheering for superman and it just kind of weakens the character i think had he committed to one way or the other um like like why not have gus get a job as a computer guy at the daily planet and then help superman i don't know like that would have been if you're going to have him help him, or if you're going to have him evil, have him really do something bad and commit to it, instead of having him waffling between the two, uh, it just makes the character a bit lame. But I'll, I'll agree, the sort of drunken, improv- seemingly improvised comedy scene um, works pretty well. Well, it works pretty well on its own. It doesn't necessarily work well as part of a Superman movie. But this leads into our action set piece, because then we go to Columbia... And the couple that won the lottery, the Save the Planet lottery, are there. Um, and they just walk right into a wedding, uh, which is pr- pretty rude. <laughs> um, and then, you know, these monsoons start and Superman flies in to save to save the day. Although we don't get to see too much of him saving the day. That leads into some awkward cutting later because later... Uh, so Ross has a ski lodge on top, full, complete with snow on top of his uh, on top of his skyscraper, which I think is a nice touch. That's a nice eccentric supervillain touch. And he's hanging out with his two uh, his two lackeys. You've got his sister uh, Annie Ross, played by Vera Webster, who's just this great harsh matron type character. Like she she's like the warden in an old uh, women in prison movie. Uh, but then you also have. One of the one of the the stranger characters is part of his gang, which I'm surprised we didn't mention earlier because she's in that that opening set piece with all the weird pranks going off, uh, which is uh, is uh, Lorelai. Mm-hmm. Who it's so because like she she acts like a like a ditzy bimbo, but her official job title is psychic nutritionist. But they never explain what that means except that she apparently coordinates therapeutic massages for Ross. And yet, she is like an intellectual, because we see whenever she's alone, she acts really smart, and she's reading these big, heady books and talking to herself using pretty advanced language, but acts like a ditz whenever anyone else is around. And that doesn't go anywhere. Like, I can only assume that she's a con woman and that this is her con. She finds people with more money and sense, pretends to be some sort of weird advisor, gets on the payroll, and then just sucks up as much money as she can and lets everybody underestimate her by acting dumb. But I don't know if that's their intention. That might just be what I'm reading into it to make the movie better. Well, and, like, why give uh, Ross Webster, like, sort of a a ditzy female cohort? Again, it just feels like you're knocking off the the Superman, or the the Lex Luthor and Miss Tessmacher thing. Well, even then, Tessmacher wasn't really a ditz. No, no, I guess not. She was just kind of laser-focused and kind of oblivious to certain other things, but she wasn't dumb. Fair enough, but I think, you know, that you, you do sort of the same thing of having them have a a companion character that, I don't know, it just doesn't, it's, 
it makes the movie feel a bit overloaded, I think. Um, when I'd, I'd rather... I mean, yeah, the villains are, are one of the worst things about the movie, no question about it. Yeah, but, but yeah, and, and this is when we get the echo of... Uh... Lorelai Ambrosia, that's that's the name. But like we, we get because we get the routine because they're all celebrating that the coffee crop's been destroyed. And then Richard Pryor shows up and says, you didn't see it. You didn't see it. Superman uh, ruined our plan. And he does the bit where it's a black guy on the news explaining what Superman does to save mm-hmm. the day. But again, they don't commit to it. They uh, I believe the TV cut has a longer version of this scene. Uh, because there, there's some more stuff about him like slurping up a lake or something like that. But, but as he describes it, and it should just be prior describing it, but as they describe it, they keep cutting to really badly staged special effect shots of Superman doing the things like turning a tornado upside down and using his heat vision to evaporate all the floodwaters. Um, and those, those intercut scenes do not work. No, it's a bit too ambitious with what special effects could do at the time. and Well, but we saw special effects do that in the first two movies. That's true. It's the same kind of business again. I'm trying to remind you of the first few films. At least this film didn't begin with like a, a big retrospective of the first two movies. Like, you can give it credit for that. Not that you would need that, really. Well, I don't know if it. I don't know if it outright needs it. Although th- there's a part of me that kind of wishes we saw a uh, a newspaper uh, a newspaper showing like Lex Luthor being tried for treason or something like that. Yeah, there you can throw your Luthor cameo in there. Yeah, but um, but yeah, and, and th- then we get a, we- a weird like slapstick stunt where he gets Pryor gets stuck in some skis, skis off the ski lodge, skis off the side of the building, and lands in the middle of the road. <laughs> Which, again, seems like something from a different movie. It does. Um. And this is... Oh, God. And this is also... So this is something that kind of bothers me because it does make Superman seem like a chump. But they realize, well, we've got to do something about Superman or he might foil our next evil scheme. And then uh, Lorelai Ambrosia points out that Superman does have a weakness, kryptonite, because she read about it in an interview. That seems like a really dumb thing to mention when you're being interviewed. Unless, of course... Well, because this is the thing. Like, if it's an interview with Lex Luthor, I bet Luthor would tell everybody that Superman has a weakness. But they never really established... Like, it would suggest that it was an interview with Superman where Superman mentioned Kryptonite. Yeah, and they end up trying to engineer a a version of Kryptonite, but there's an unknown material component of it. So instead they use black tar for whatever reason. Well, well, because he needs to fill in that, like, 05 three percent of of the compound and he just looks at his cigarette and it says like tar warnings like okay tar and he, just, he doesn't write in the chemical formula for tar he just writes in tar but yeah they use that to make a uh, synthetic kryptonite and i will say this that's kind of so this goes into more obscure parts of the superman mythos but there are different kinds of kryptonite with different effects and i like that they use that concept in this movie and that that's how they bring it in and it leads to you know what might be the most famous scene in the picture of you have Superman as uh, Superman turns bad. The swoop in his hair goes the opposite way. He's drinking shots of whiskey. He he, he, he uh, grows out his his beard, his five o'clock he, shadow. Yeah, he straightens the Leaning Tower of Pisa. It's, just to be a dick. Yeah, it's just these ridiculous... Like, Superman's bad, but he doesn't end up... The bad Superman, I don't think, does anything totally bad. Well, he doesn't but, kill anybody. <laughs> no, but I, he, maybe he could have. I don't know. But in... 
in in a junkyard you get a, a scene where then the evil superman splits between you know clark kent his good self and the evil superman and they fight and i mean this is an inspired sequence and if anything it, you know, this could have been the plot of the movie, or this would have been like a climax or something. Well, but yeah, like just here in the middle of the movie, it again feels like from a completely different film. And like, it's a great scene too. Mm-hmm. Like, it has emotional weight, but also like, it's it's one of those things where it feels like a fight scene straight out of the comic books, and they take advantage of the scene. Do we want to just describe that scene now since we're on it? Yeah, uh, yeah, and like they take advantage of the environment, like you know, using the giant metal compactors and like trying to trap each other in a thrown stack of tires it's re- it's really well done and it all and it also harkens back to an old 1960s superman story uh superman red superman blue where superman got split into a good side and an evil side and that was like a long going that was that story arc had like lasted a few issues back in the 60s and like it it, it makes it feel like some somebody in this movie cares about superman and cares about the cares about the superman mythos because we get the alternate kryptonite and we get the superman versus his his other self and that's right out of the comics well it's nice to see christopher reeve he's having fun playing the evil superman but also as in the battle of him as clark kent you see him really struggle and that's that's interesting to see Oh yeah, and it's neat because and the evil Superman fights completely differently from Clark Kent in that scene. He takes cheap shots. He doesn't care what like Clark Kent fights in a restrained manner in that sequence. The evil Superman does not care. He's just swinging and trying to do as much damage as possible. Also, the scene goes on much longer than I thought, but it doesn't feel like wasted time. It, it, it in a way. It's it's sort of just as brutal and just as entertaining as the put on the glasses fight scene from They Live. Right. Uh, unfortunately, after that, we have to go back to the main plot of the movie. Yeah. Well, there is some build up to that fight though because they get they get the alternate kryptonite, and so um, Superman. So Lana has a kid, and the kid's a huge fan of Superman, as you would expect. And Superman did save the kid when he when he slipped and hit his head on a rock and almost got sucked up by uh, one of the Websco uh, wheat uh, threshers. And it's and it's pretty it's a pretty fun scene. But um, the kid like told his friends that he was friends with Superman and that Superman would show up at his birthday party. So Clark was going to arrange things so that Superman could show up. But the town, but instead Smallville holds a celebration to honor Superman and give him the key to the city. And in the middle of this, we get another bit where Richard Pryor drives up in a van dressed as a three-star general and does this whole George Patton speech. Uh, full of full of a healthy amount of jingoism and nationalism, and then presents Superman with an award, and the award is just a big old chunk of kryptonite. <laughs> like they don't even try to disguise it as anything. It seems so. Like I can't believe that anyone is buying this routine. It's not funny. It's not as good as the drunk scene from earlier. It kind of goes on. Yeah, it's it feels like a forced attempt at comedy. Yeah, but you know he he does take he does Superman as as if if anything polite and humble. So he takes he takes the uh, the the altered kryptonite, uh, and you know it doesn't kill him, and everybody's weirded out. But then of course he starts like he starts kind of getting dizzy, and then he he tur- he turns evil, and he he and 
it's really I got to say I don't remember this scene being being as creepy the last time I watched it but maybe it's just cuz I wasn't aware of certain things but after the big get together Superman's hanging out with Lana Lang after putting the kid to bed and he starts macking on Lana Lang and there's a traffic accident that, where he could save a truck that's hanging off of a bridge but he doesn't he just kind of hangs around creeping on Lana Lang um Finally, he goes, but he gets there too late, and it implies that the guy in the truck died when the truck went over the side of the bridge. And it's really a dark scene. That whole sequence of events is very dark. And that's when we get Superman acting like a dick. And then we also get uh, Webster's other evil plan, where uh, where he's going to have Gus use another computer to reprogram the the navigation systems on all these oil tankers to keep them circling in the middle of the Atlantic. But there's one oil oil tanker that won't do it because the captain like just the captain overrides the auto navigation because it's like we're supposed to go to port. Why would we waste time in the Atlantic? That's dumb. Um, and so they need to figure out a way to because now he wants to corner the oil market. So now they got to figure out a way to to do that. And so Lorelai has a stroke of genius. She somehow gets on top of the Statue of Liberty. And when Superman comes to, quote unquote, rescue her, she seduces him. They fly back to the penthouse. And uh, there and just like the second movie, there's some super boning that goes on. That's right. And they don't even try to, because, and it's not even like sort of delicately implied, like in the previous film, like it's clear that's what's going on. Uh, and, it, and it's even referenced again later. But yeah, she convinces Superman to screw with that oil tanker. So Superman rips the hull open, uh, causing an oil leak. But uh, at this point, you know, Lana Lang realizes that there's nothing for her in Smallville. So she decides she's going to go to she's going to go to Metropolis, show her kid around, maybe even, you know, maybe even uh, look for a job there. Uh, and that's when we get one of the best scenes in the movie where Superman flies into this seedy bar and is taking shots of whiskey and breaking things by supersonically flicking peanuts into things. It's an inspired bit of business. And it's really great. And like he, he stumbles out like, what are you looking at? Get away from me. And the kid's like, Superman, you're not bad. You're just in a slump. You can be good again. And I like that it's the words of a child that kind of gets Superman questioning what's happened to him and then leads us to that awesome uh, junkyard fight scene we described earlier. Right. And yeah, and so when Superman, after the fight scene, when Superman gets good again... Oh, you also notice that Superman, when he goes evil, his costume gets darker? I didn't notice that. I noticed his hair goes the opposite way. Yeah, they do do that, but like the his costume, all the... Every, everything, all the tones on the costume are darkened. Like, like you could take that as reading he's not doing his super laundry, but like it does make <laughs> him look sinister. It starts edging into the fascist Justice Lord Superman uh, type costume. But yeah, so then he flies around. He he undoes. You know, he he corrects a lot of damage. He he saves the oil tanker. Uh, and then we get the bit where. But then we have. Uh, another bit of business where so Richard Pryor Gus designs the ultimate computer and I do kind of like the idea that he's writing his designs on whatever's available so like part of it's written on a cigarette carton part of it's written on a napkin part of it's written on half a sheet of paper or a burger wrapper but it's like the ultimate computer uh, and uh, that Robert Vaughn's going to build it because they could use this computer to rule the world um, so the balloon scene 
Why do you think they did that? Do you think they did that because it looks cool, or do you think that one of the backers of the movie owned a personal balloon company and only agreed to give the movie money if they showed his balloons? I think it might be the second one. I don't know, but it, it, it's a weird detail in there that doesn't quite work. And uh, I do wonder, you know, all this supercomputer stuff at the end, do you think this was originally Brainiac in the original script? Oh, it, it had to have something to do with Brainiac. There had like what it had, that, that there's so many opportunities to have like Brainiac uh, or or a Brainiac type character in this scene with the mega computer, but again, but we don't but we don't get that. Um, but anyway, for some reason, it's built into the side of the Grand Canyon, <laughs> um, and uh, and and eventually, you know, Superman. Uh, and of course, we get. Uh, we get the whole donkey thing with Richard Pryor because he doesn't want to fly. Uh, but um, Superman uh, Superman tracks them down. We do get... If the effects were better, I think this scene would work better where they power up the computer and they start firing missiles at Superman. And it doesn't work on either side because with Superman, it's really bad match shots of Superman flying around and explosions happening around him. But inside the computer... The targeting system for the missiles is a Superman video game. Which at the time would have been impressive graphics. Oh um, no, if that was a game at the time, that would have been mind-blowing graphics. But it really is a gag. It is a gag, and I, also that they're using rockets brings to mind all the business with the rockets from the first movie a little bit. Yeah, especially when they have that mega missile. Like, the only scene I like, just because of its audaciousness, is when Superman kicks one missile into another missile and it sets off a <laughs> chain of explosions. It doesn't look good, but I like the idea of that interaction. But you're, this stuff towards the end, as he uh, gets to the supercomputer, is the thing you said would have scared your siblings, right? Yeah, yeah, because Superman shows up to confront the supercomputer, and Lorelai, Lorelai Ambrosia even says, you know, Superman, you know, what about me? And he's like, I'm sorry, lady, I don't know you, that wasn't me, uh, kind of writing off their interaction. But yeah, so the computer, so what, the computer is so advanced that Richard Pryor has designed that it can calculate anyone's weakness and it can defend itself. It can learn to defend itself from any threat. Um, and so when it comes in, when it attacks Superman first, it traps him in this bubble, but Superman breaks free. Then it zaps him with kryptonite and the computer can synthesize real kryptonite radiation. So Superman flees and you think Superman's been defeated. Uh, but Richard Pryor realizes he doesn't want to really be involved in killing anybody. Although, to be fair, he probably did kill some people when he started that monsoon. So he removes this critical component from the computer, but the computer's gotten so smart, it reroutes itself and locks everyone out and starts attacking Superman again when he comes back. And as part of this, um, uh, Vera Webster, Ross's sister gets sucked into the computer, and this is the nightmare fuel. She gets turned into a cyborg zombie with lightning powers. And this is a disturbing scene. Yep. I mean, it really is... It really is terrifying. Uh, and, and, like, pro probably... Whether intentional or not, probably way more terrifying than the movie needs because it is it is so jarring and it's so creepy seeing her jerk around and attack Superman and pin people to the wall with, like... Uh, phantasm spheres uh, and, and it's so strange because it is just practical effects it's just reverse shots of circuits flying onto her body and then she's in silver body paint and has like silver eyeball contacts but it works 
I think because it's all practical effects, it, it makes it even more disturbing. But it turns out that Superman uh, did have a backup plan. He flew back to the chemical plant, got some of that acid, and because the acid was at room temperature, the computer detects the acid but doesn't register as a th- as a threat. So when the Superman, so when the computer, and this is good, I love Superman outsmarting his foes. When the computer sucks Superman in to assimilate him and turn him into a cyborg slave, Superman just drops the uh, drop, puts the uh, opens the acid jar next to where he's being sucked into the computer, and I can only assume in the original. I can only assume he was supposed to blast it with his heat vision because it doesn't indicate that, like, the scene is hot enough to activate the acid, but the acid gets activated and explodes and melts the computer. Right. And that's how Superman saves the day. Uh, And we do get a little... And we get too many buttons on things. So our first button is Superman flies Richard Pryor to safety... Uh, and I do kind of like the bit of interaction with him carrying Richard Pryor through the air. Um, and he drops Richard Pryor off at this uh, coal plant saying, you know, if you've got a, if you have a computer here, uh, my friend Gus is pretty good with computers. Maybe I ought to give him a job. Uh, and like, I kind of wish that, I guess this is when we learn something essential about Gus that is implied when he's in the, in the unemployment office. He is essentially self-defeating. Because he has a guaranteed job working at this uh, coal processing area as their computer technician, but he just leaves. He just walks away, goes back to whatever he was doing before, uh, which potentially could be another life of crime involving computers. We don't really know. Um, But then we get another button where uh, we go back to the Daily Planet where the couple from from Columbia is threatening to sue and Lois Lane comes back with her tan and reveals that while she was there, she uncovered corruption in Bermuda and now has like another article that's up for the Pulitzer Prize. And the whole time I'm thinking she should have been on a trip to South America and we should have seen her during the, during the, the weather satellite scene. But again, lost opportunity. They wrote her out of the movie. Um... And then they bring in the new lottery machine, which is computerized, which goes haywire, um, which is a bad gag. And then we get another button on the scene where Superman goes back to Pisa and re-leans the tower. And we see the souvenir gift shop people get angry and smash all of their straightened tower merchandise. There are too many buttons. Too many buttons. Also, why he took that long to straighten the tower of Pisa, he could have done that before. (laughs) He must not like Italians or something, but yeah, it's it's a strange decision. It's a you know it's sort of a a weird ending to the film. The whole movie just feels like nothing of consequence. Yeah. And I, think I almost the, I almost wish that it it should end like it begins with Richard Pryor like in line somewhere. If he's, he's going to turn down that again, job, or, yeah, he might as well be in line somewhere. What, and he sees a matchbook advertising another job, and he's like, ah, oh, this will be the one. Yeah. Make it, big money, learn to be a chef. Right. Ooh, I've always liked my uh, eggs in the morning. No, it's, I mean, this movie, it's it's bad, but it's boring. You know, it's not so bad that it's, a, that it's so bad that it's funny. It's just bad, which is worse. I, I'd compare it to being more like Batman Forever than Batman and Robin. Mm, yeah, I, I, I can see that. And, and yet... This isn't a good movie, but it wasn't as bad as I remember. 
Like overall, sure. I enjoyed watching this movie, uh, and it is, and it's, it's one of those fascinating Hollywood anomalies that there's a Richard Pryor vehicle that is also a Superman movie, a, a big superheroic blockbuster. Yeah, I um, I do wish I could track down that original screenplay. I'm just really curious or treatment, whatever it was, how how they would have handled it because it also was supposed to have Supergirl in there. Um, oh yeah, who did eventually get her own movie? She did, which is expensive and tricky to track down. <laughs> yeah, but it's but we, but the, hey, the new show's good. Um, I, I say new show, but it's all in like its third season. Um, the uh, but yeah, I guess for 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 all of its faults, and I didn't think I was going to do this, but I've got to get this movie a sequel. Yes. It's fascinating to watch because of its weird history, but it's also, it's still entertaining, and the stuff with Lana Lang is so good. I give it a sequel. No, I don't. I don't think it quite makes it there. I think you have some uh, some good scenes, uh, some of the Smallville stuff. I like that it's kind of lower key and lower stakes, but um, at the end, like it feels like something out of a completely different movie. The scene where the computer takes over the woman and she's like a robot person reminds me of a scene that terrified me as a kid from poltergeist 2 and the boy with the braces and his braces wrap him up and start attacking him oh Um, yeah it's it's disturbing and uh so some interesting moments but as a whole i don't think the movie works i'll have to get a sequel no uh and uh before we do our pitch a sequel uh, thrasher you had mentioned uh something about the soundtrack jumped out to you Oh yeah, so the soundtrack is all over the place because like the first the first two movies it was pretty much all the John Williams score, but there's a lot of like pop music worked into this. Like at the, like at the uh, at the high school reunion, uh, we get ro- uh, we get bits of Rollover Beethoven and Earth Angel by the Penguins, Rock Around the Clock, which does kind of ground the movie in reality, and I like that kind of diegetic music in this kind of uh, in this kind of movie. But then it's also got No See No Cry by Shaka Khan. Uh, it's got this. Uh, I can't. I'm not sure what the. There's a there's a country there's a weird synth heavy country and western track that shows up like three times in the movie. And I'm not sure, but I'm not sure what its title is. I can never quite make out the lyrics, so I don't know if it's "They Won't Get Me" by Roger Miller or or, or what. But there's this weird, this it's so weird. there's sort of there's a lot of pop music from different eras in this movie, but then there's there's that synth heavy western song that doesn't sound like any western song you've ever heard because of all the synths. And it's synth trying to sound like sliding steel guitar, but as a result, it sounds like nothing. <laughs> I'm just trying to pull it up here. Let's see. Oh, yeah. Oh, no, it was They Won't Get Me by Roger Miller. I think that is the uh, the synth heavy song. Yeah, with Giorgio Moroder wrote it. it. Um, it's kind of Gus's theme because when Gus is is making a stink in the restaurant, it's playing. But also when Gus and oh no, yeah, well, no, yeah, when Gus is walking around Smallville, it plays in a restaurant. When uh, when uh, when Brad is at the restaurant, and it's also played when Gus and Brad are drinking together uh, in the the wheat the wheat cereal office. Right. 
well, cool. Uh, let's do picture sequel. Um, I'll begin, I guess. Uh, so, after this movie, you know, all the Richard Pryor stuff, it, it, I think the idea would be to do draw on uh, more of the, the history of the Superman comics. And I what I would like to see, and this is a bit anachronistic, but bear with me, I would want them to do a, a movie using, you know, special effects from the late 80s, early 90s, adapting Death and Return of Superman as two separate movies. Because huh. I would like to see, you know, with mainly practical effects, how you would do Cyborg, how you do the Eradicator, how you do Superboy, and, you know. How you, how do, you like, do Doomsday. Yeah, Doomsday, right. Would it be I like imagine him being a Jim Henson creature shop creation. I, yeah, I'm thinking something sort of like the Rancor from Return of the Jedi. But I think the idea of doing this crazy story with a zillion different Superman in it, splitting it up into two movies, and um, mainly just to see the idea of scenes with like four different Superman in it, all in the same scene, with, with uh, these kind of special effects, I think could be sort of interesting. And it, it is odd that you when you had a comic uh, with the, the whole death and return of Superman arc that especially the one where Superman dies I think still might be one of the best selling comics of all time and that when they finally did put it to film in Batman v Superman Dawn of Justice that's the way they did it is mind boggling yeah it, it's kind of flat and it also means you can never use Superman dying as a plot point ever again well have you heard news that um with the DC uh, and cartoons direct video, they're doing Death and Return of Superman as two different animated films. Now they already did that, so they're, they, they, they're they doing did, a new one. But yeah, they're doing a new one. When they they did it initially, it was one of their first direct video movies, and uh, they crammed it all into one movie and cut out a lot of characters, and it was pretty bad. And so now they're trying to do something a bit more faithful, and uh, I hope it's good. The thing I'm really excited though is. Um, they really want to try and get a uh, animated version of Superman Red Sun, which I think would be fantastic. Oh yeah, I know. I've heard that that is in production. That's is it? that's yeah. a really interesting story. Where if, if uh, listeners, if you don't know, it's it's an Elseworlds story where the premise is: what if instead of uh, Kal El's escape pod landing in in Kansas, what if it landed somewhere in Russia? So it's. It's the classic Golden Age Superman, but raised in communist Russia and becoming this, and eventually like becoming the leader of communist Russia. Yeah, and it's um, was written by Mark Millar, Soviet and, Union. That's what it is. Yep, and who who later you know has done stuff like Kick Ass and Kingsman, but um, yeah, it's just really. Well done and smart, but I'm sort of getting off on a tangent here. But yeah, if I was to do Superman as a movie, I would do uh, Death and Return of Superman. I think would be something would be good on the silver screen. Now, what about you? What would you do? Would you do something based off the comics, something original? I, I How would do you like follow to follow up Superman three. I, I would like to dig into the comics, and I would also love to see it done with practical '80s effects. Um, so what I what I would do for for my for my sequel, uh, I will presume that we can get Gene Hackman back as Lex Luthor, and you know he still he wants revenge on Superman for for foiling everything for two movies, um, uh, and so he wants to bring down Superman, and so. He's come up with the idea of making kryptonite weapons, but where is he going to get more kryptonite? Well, a mysterious benefactor starts supplying uh, Luthor with kryptonite. Now, Luthor's not an idiot. 
he realizes that no one would just supply him with kryptonite, so something must be going on. So the whole movie, he will be formulating a contingency plan. But as a result, uh, criminal criminals start showing up armed with kryptonite weapons, and they can get away with their crimes because they're able to use them against Superman. Uh, and at the same time, while all this is going on, NASA detects something mysterious at the edge of our solar system. Now, before I know what you're thinking, I'm trying to bring Brainiac into yet another Superman sequel. And I thought about doing that, but I'm not going to do it for this one. So, uh, things are going crazy. People are losing their faith uh, in Superman. Uh, and finally, we discover what this mysterious thing at the edge of the solar system is. It's the War World, the uh, planet-sized headquarters of the DC alien supervillain Mongol, who wants to take over the earth and enslave it to power his to power up his war world but of course he can't do that while superman's around he's the guy that's been supplying lex luthor with kryptonite and now that superman's been softened up mongol and his battle thralls are going to come down and try to take over the world um and he will, in fact, capture a weakened Superman and try to break Superman's will. And this is where it's going to get interesting. So Luthor doesn't like being played by a, played for a fool. So he had, does have contingency plans. He doesn't think anyone should rule the world for him. So Luthor steals the space shuttle, goes to the war world, frees Superman, and Superman and Luthor team up to defeat Mongol. And they do. Mongol gets possibly even banished to the Phantom Zone. But either either way, you know, uh, the War World is kicked out of our solar system. Mongol's never coming back. Uh, Superman and Lex Luthor do have a newfound respect for each other. However, Superman is not. But of course, Luthor's held on to some extra kryptonite. Uh, Superman's not going to fall for that. So in the in the end, Superman. Uh, uh, Superman does uh, get does get Luthor back in jail, destroys his stockpile of kryptonite, you know, throw, throws it into the sun or into outer space or something. Does something to get rid of it, and of course, and you know, the day is saved. He's back to full power, and criminals no longer have a supply of kryptonite weapons. And now, I'm thinking Ron Perlman should play Mongol. That could be cool. Uh, would Luthor? have when he helps Superman at the end would he have that sort of mecha suit that he's been having in the the video games lately I, I well he had it in the comics too the the uh, mm -hmm. Luthor uh, war suit yeah I think I, I think he would do that I absolutely think he would and I think that'll be the thing is like the war suit will be kryptonite powered and he's going and his plan is after they defeat Mongol he'll use the suit to defeat Superman but Superman sees this coming and, and and outwits Luthor and is able to separate him from his kryptonite power source. Cool. Yeah, but Ron Perlman, I think, would make a... Especially Ron Perlman of the 80s would make a perfect Mongol. Definitely. Yeah, the way that they could do that with the effects would be pretty cool with the makeup. And, you know, and that's his thing, is wearing full-body monster suits, so might as well give him another full-body monster suit. That's right. Okay, let's move on to um, what you're watching. Thrasher, what have you been watching? Oh, gosh. Well, I'm trying to get... I kind of have a backlog uh, of things uh, of things to talk about. Uh, but let me see. There's a few things. Oh, so I, I ended up... Uh, uh, so uh, my wife and I are going to be vending at a Harry Potter event. 
Uh, and to prep for that, to get ideas for things for her, for crochet things to make, which by the way, if you want to buy my wife's crochet stuff, check out, uh, a punch in the art on Etsy. Uh, so we, we rewatched the Harry Potter movies. Okay. Uh, and so like that kind of comprised a big chunk of what I've been watching recently because we went, we went through that series. And I think, I, I think I gotta say, I think the, uh, I think the order of the Phoenix is my favorite. I like that one as well, it, I think. It feels the most like a movie. It has a great story. Dolores Umbridge makes a wonderful antagonist. Uh, I just, it's, and I, and I realize we talked about these movies before, but now having some distance and reevaluating them, Order of the Phoenix is a damned good movie. It, it is. I think it, it shakes up the formula a bit, and it helps that the people are a bit older. I think that's part of... The fun of those movies is they made them back-to-back fast enough where they didn't seem too old by the last movie. Yeah, like it really... The characters really did sort of grow up in real time. And, um, yeah, even to the point where, you know, in I think some of the later films they do flashbacks to the first ones and it's sort of of sweet to see, oh, they were so young at the beginning. And also that the acting of, of all the actors gets better. Um... In particular, Daniel Radcliffe, who I don't think is that great in the first one. I watched a, uh, a documentary directed by Neil Berkeley on on Hulu called Gilbert. About oh, Gilbert I've heard Godfrey. that's real good. It is, it is. You know, they go over his um, whole career, but more interestingly, it focuses on his strained relationship with his late father um, and how late in life he got married and had two children uh he i mean gilbert not his father um and he talks about his relationship with his sisters and he, he lives in new york and, and him also being uh, now he has the podcast gilbert godfrey's amazing colossal podcast give that a listen if you haven't especially if you like older movies and stuff like that but he also talks about um how he he loves to i don't know if he it's just he saves money non-stop so he'll take buses to gigs he'll get complimentary shampoos and soaps underneath his bed he has um buckets and buckets full of complimentary soaps and toothpaste (laughs) from hotels from the 80s and 90s never opened uh even to the point they don't get into this in the movie but he talked about this in some uh, podcast i think where his daughter for a science experiment took a sampling of toothpaste that gilbert godfrey hadn't opened since the uh 80s and 90s <laughs> and i guess somehow analyzed the the fluoride content in them to see at what point does the fluoride start to not work anymore to like degrade yeah yeah what the de- de- degradation is and uh, it's but yeah it, it, it's a warm-hearted documentary more so than you might think but of course they also include Gilbert godfrey's uh you know um penchant for dirty jokes and the aristocrats and oh yeah i love his version of the aristocrats yeah that that a clip of that is played in here and you get actors talking about them um one thing that's pretty interesting is they have archival footage of eddie murphy talking about how great gilbert godfrey is but the footage is in bad shape and it must have been around the time of beverly hills cop 2 because gilbert godfrey has a small part in that film oh yeah and it makes me wonder why they couldn't get eddie murphy to to speak about it um, nowadays, although I think he's, he's tough to get a hold of. Uh, one thing I did read somewhere is Jim Carrey was supposed to appear in this, but then he decided not to because of um, legal problems. He's he's been doing a 
Jim Carrey's been doing a, a lawsuit about the death of a girlfriend of his um, from a few years back, which is unfortunate. Um, so, but anyhow, yeah, Gilbert, I, I think it's it's good and it's more tender-hearted than you might expect, and it's cool. um, it's a lot of him schlumping around in a bathrobe. <coughs> it, it, I liked a sequence where in a hotel room, he uh, washes his underpants in the sink. He washes his clothes in the sink. So he doesn't have to pay money for the laundromat at the hotel. Um, one place where it has him doing stand-up comedy, it happens to be the same place where there's a, uh, oh, what do you call it? It's like a convention where people dress up in historical outfits, but there's a lot of... Um, like a renaissance fair? No, more like military. Oh, like the reenactments. Yeah, a reenactment sort of convention. And there's a lot of reenactment um, Nazi and SS uniforms. And people walking around dressed up like that, that sort of throws them off a bit. <clears throat> but then they come up to him yeah. and say there's a big... And they say he's they say they're big fans. And <laughs> he's you know, sort of in an awkward position there. But it, yeah, it's a lot of interesting things in the film. At 94 minutes, it doesn't outstay its welcome. I recommend Gilbert. Um, and anything else you've been seeing besides Harry Potter, or is that about it? Well, I mean that that kind of uh, took up a big a big chunk of uh, of my uh, my watching time, but as far oh gosh, as far as like other uh, other movie length things I've seen recently. Oh, actually, you know what I have been doing? Um, <clears throat> I am trying to fill in the gaps of of my mystery science theater experience because I realized there's so many episodes of that show, and we didn't have cable for such a long period. There are a smattering of episodes in every season that I I never saw. So I'm going I'm going back and trying to fill in those gaps. Now are these uh, episodes uh, released on video or are they stuff you're finding um, on YouTube? Or? Whenever possible, I try to watch them through legitimate sources. Uh, mm-hmm. Shout Factory thankfully has put a lot of the Mystery Science Theater archives up for free on YouTube, often with annotations, which are pretty cool, where oh. they explain all the jokes and every now and then something behind the scenes. Um, but I finally, I finally watched uh, the episode Robot Holocaust, which I had only seen the first 15 minutes of when it originally aired. But we, we were on vacation in the Outer Banks, and I was just I was watching that while waiting to leave. And so like I, I, <laughs> I only saw the first 15 minutes, never saw it since. And it was one of the episodes that like I think never if it reran at all, it reran very rarely because like they lost the rights to the movies from the first three seasons real quick. And those couldn't air again. Uh, and Robot Holocaust is this weird post-apocalyptic movie where robots have taken over the world and there's a poison atmosphere, but one guy can breathe it. <clears throat> and there's like this woman with a really thick accent who's like the, the, the evil supercomputer's number two person. And one of the robots looks like Zoidberg. And one of the robots is like a bad parody of C-3PO. And there's women in, in sexy outfits and, and gladiatorial fights. <laughs> And it's like, and it's and it's from so early in the show's run that like crow, like the crow robot hasn't been perfected. So crow's mouth moves because there's a stick under it. Oh, can you see the stick then? Oh yeah, you can clearly see the stick, uh, which is weird because like in in like the first few episodes he doesn't have a stick. It's like fishing line or something that goes through his neck. So I can only assume the puppet broke that day, and that that was the fastest solution that they could do. Right. 
but it was it was fun it was it was fun the the episode really holds up so i'm looking at these alternate posters for superman 3 the one that you always see which doesn't even have a tagline is just superman flying over the grand canyon holding a panicky richard pryor but there's another really cool one where it's richard pryor working at a computer console and superman is bursting out of a bank of old tape reel computers there's another really good one where like the where it's Superman being blasted by the kryptonite laser and the computer's in the background and has this neat robotic silhouette. And that has a pretty cool tagline. If the world's most powerful computer can control even Superman, no one on Earth is safe. Hmm. Hey, I gotta ask, did you, uh, did you ever see on A Living Color the sketch Richard Pryor scared for no reason? No. It's, it's a really trenchant insight into Richard Pryor's film roles but it's a it's a fake trailer for a Richard Pryor movie called Scared for No Reason. Because if you'll notice, Richard Pryor, even in this movie, always acts like he's on the verge of panicking. Yeah, that's true. Like, even in a Superman movie, which actually leads to, like, a, a really weird... I can only... I feel like this is... They must have let Richard Pryor improvise a lot, because it leads to this line, which I just feel like is improvised. Where he's like, man, I, when he's talking to Ross, when Ross is trying to talk him into doing something illegal, he's like, man, I don't want to go to prison. They got robbers and rapists and rapists who rape robbers. And that sounds like a Richard Pryor joke, but, like, that... That probably doesn't need to be in a soup in, in a Superman movie. It like it, it goes far beyond that that bit in the first movie where Perry White's correct like pointing out to Lois, oh yeah, there's only there's only or there's 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 one P in rapist. Like it's it's a it's a weird gag that kinda feels out of place in the movie. Sure. Um something else I saw recently was the disaster artist. I need to see that. Yeah, the movie in theaters. That's uh, it's a movie, the a making movie of the room. about the making of the room. The room being the Tommy Wiseau film, not the acclaimed Academy Award nominated film from a few years or, back, or the experimental uh, Jim Henson movie. That yeah, that too. Um, so yeah, Disaster Artist. I, I thought was was pretty good. However, it, if you hadn't seen the room, like you shouldn't see the Disaster Artist because it doesn't make a lot of sense otherwise. Yeah, I I can't imagine like not having context that that this is the movie that really happened. And um you know James Franco I think is pretty good as Tommy Oso. Um his brother Dave Franco plays the other guy. Uh and he's not quite as good. Um the book as I recall is a bit darker because it's based off the memoir The Disaster Artist by let me look and see who wrote that. But yeah, I think, uh, you know, as far as... I, I've seen a few of other of James Franco's directed films. This is by far his most mainstream thing. But even that, it has sort of like a loose, junky, dirty feel to it. The book is by uh, Greg Sestero and Tom Bissell. But Greg Sestero is the guy that David Franco is playing, the guy with the beard. Um, it uh, the one, one thing with the movie that I don't think works is for some reason it opens up with documentary-style interviews of celebrities saying why The Room is a huge movie. Huh. And it it's like they don't use those at all in other places of the film. And it also, like, if I was watching that, I just was thinking, well, if you had come in to see The Disaster Artist, you hadn't seen what The Room was, and you see these celebrities talking about it, but them not showing clips of the movie, it would just come off as really weird. Like, I think that's sort of a misstep. I don't quite understand why he did that. When you, when you see people like Kevin Smith 
talk about why the room is awesome. But is it really? I mean, it's I no, don't judge it's, it's that it's not. a movie that's so bad it's terrible. It's just that it's so inexplicable. It's like an attractive nuisance. You can't you can't look away because it's so bizarre. Well, and it's a movie where you know when I've only seen it once, and I think that's enough for me. But we watched it with friends drinking beer, and even that in that uh, setting, it was hard to get through. It, but I think having that familiarity is a must before seeing The Disaster Artist. And I think one thing The Disaster Artist does, which is cool, is at the end credits, they show several instances of them filming scenes of the room for The Disaster Artist, played back to played simultaneously with scenes from the room. And not <clears throat> only do they get the, the scene composition and the, the costumes and the lighting done well, but they even have the scene where the dialogue is in the same rhythm as the original. Hmm. Would you, you know, would you compare uh, Disaster Artist with uh, Tim Burton's Ed Wood? It's not nearly as good as Ed Wood. I mean, but I, I can see why you'd make that comparison. I think it's um, it's more about the making of the movies than Ed Wood was, and less about the relationships of the characters outside of that. Hmm. Um. You get a lot of, like, montages, too, about, like, what they did to get the film equipment, uh, them doing a casting process, um, that sort of thing. And there's a really good scene that actually was one of the trailers for the film, where it, it's a part where Tommy was so, uh, you know, he walks out of a room and says, like, I did not, I did not hit her. Oh, hi, Mark. Oh, and yeah, the, the them, infamous like, doing, hi, Mark. Like, right, and they're doing, like, 20, like, they show you like 20 balloon takes in a row and the the DP is like saying like, nope, you need to do the line, you know, and it it's just a really funny self-contained scene and it makes sense why that was one of the trailers for this movie. But I, I would recommend The Disaster Artist, but please see The Room before watching it. I'm a bit surprised theaters aren't doing double features, although because of that, <laughs> you are seeing The Room um, do stuff. Did you just say something? Skype made a noise at me. Oh, oh, I, I just I, I just you. sent you an image uh, of, uh, of, yeah. of Ross's sister halfway through being turned into a robot. That's it's just terrifying. She looks shocked to be in that trading card. Uh, definitely. I wish you could Let's... see it. It's from the listeners. It's from like the old uh, Superman three trading card set. I, I see it now. Yeah, jeez. Uh, Robotized. Okay. Well, well, let's close this out with the scene. Uh, let's let's do our plugs at the end, and we'll close it out with redoing a scene from Superman three. Okay. And uh, so, uh, for sequel cast two, this is uh, Matt. Follow me on Twitter at MATWBT. Follow the show on Twitter at sequelcast two. And this is uh, Thrasher. You can follow me on Twitter at Internet Mayor. Also, if you want to uh, uh, support uh, something I've worked on, on drivethroughrpg.com, this was just released like yesterday as of this recording. Uh, Ten Reflections on Lovecraft. Uh, I did not write the book, but I was the Pathfinder consultant for it. It's a uh, Pathfinder compatible source book that adapts ten of Lovecraft's more obscure and unique monsters for that role-playing system. It's uh, by Michael Ovarhola. Uh, it's pretty It's pretty fun. I'm, I'm really glad that I had an opportunity to consult on it. Very cool. Um, so, we... Uh, let's see. Yeah. Um, next week we're going to be looking at Superman 4, The Quest for Peace. The only one that gets a subtitle. Uh, yeah, oddly enough. Um, so... Uh, until next time, uh, we're going to end this out with us doing a scene from the screenplay for Superman 3. 
uh, from the beginning and in, the, in, the, in this particular uh, dialogue is a little bit different than I think what's in the film, if I have this right. I believe you're correct. Uh, so do you want to you wanna play Gus? Yeah, sure. Okay, and I'll, I'll be the clerk. And this is Gus is in the, in the unemployment line. He's talking to the clerk. Uh, Mr. Gorman, according to your records, you've been unemployed for 36 weeks. 35. I'm not counting this week. Uh, you secured employment last June as a messenger and were discharged after day one for... Well, they said I lost it on the subway. But, but it ain't, though. It's a pickpocket took it. A television set? Well, it was one of those, you know, itty-bitty, two-inch screen Japanese jobs. The only other employment you found was in a fast food joint, which lasted uh, 28 minutes. Well, that's some kind of record. Talk about fast. Man, those people was crazy. I mean, how do they expect you to, to learn all that jive on the first day? I mean, hold the pickle, hold the lettuce, extra onion, special sauce, no special sauce. Ain't nobody found no meat inside that glop yet. End scene. And I would conclude that scene by mugging to the camera. Stick around too long, like I spread myself around. They won't get me.